And this is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away, and we would like some walk-up music for our Northampton Poets Laureate. Welcome to NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio, with erstwhile Poets Laureate, Rich Michelson and Martina Spada. Let me turn the microphone over to one Poet Laureate, one Rich Michelson. Hi, everyone. Well, it's funny, you know, that music follows me and Martine wherever we go. Uh, <laughs> we walk down the street and people just play that music. I uh, thought they hummed it to you, yeah, Rich. What do you mean they play it? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things about living in a small town. So, um, Martine, welcome once again to Northampton Poetry Radio. I think you've got the award for the most guests. and Another award for uh, Martina Spada, who has had <laughs> just an avalanche of awards, particularly in the past few years. Yeah, really well, well, on his resume, it says awards number one appears on Northampton Poetry Radio. That's <laughs> followed by the National Book Award, um, which is followed by the Ruth Lilly Prize, the Shelley Memorial Prize, the Robert Creeley Award, Academy of American Poets Fellowship, Penn Revron Fellowship. Rich, we only have 15 minutes We're for the segment. We're number one. Uh, Martine is reading, yes. put this on your calendar, this Saturday, uh, the, the Lava Center in Greenfield at 7 to 9 p.m. That's the Lava Center, 324 Main Street in Greenfield. Uh, it is a fundraiser uh, for the community art space. And... Um, Martine will be reading with Mishi Serrano, who will be leading off, an acclaimed Puerto Rican poet, activist, and organizer. Uh, and then Martine will step to the mic. Tickets uh, are accessible, $10, and that will go towards supporting the Lava Center. So, um, Martine, let's say hi again. It's good to see you on screen. And, hi again. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's been such a pleasure to uh, be reading you with you over these last couple of months to see floaters just take off. Uh, let's start right off with a poem. And floaters is? Floaters is the name of his National Book Award winning poetry collection, one of the most important collections uh, this country has ever seen. I mean, I say that seriously. It is an amazing book. If it is not in your collection, um, Please go out and buy it now because you will be moved, amazed, you'll laugh, you'll cry. I mean, this is really an important book of American poetry. And for those of our listeners who haven't heard you read from it before, Martin, Floaters refers to what? Uh, Floaters is the name um, assigned by certain members of the Border Patrol to those who have drowned crossing over. Okay, That's so... Where it comes from. It's um, it, it's an incredible poem. Let, let's read something from the book. Or actually, uh, did you want to read something new? Yeah, I'm a poet, so I'm stubborn, which means I'm going to read something new after that big buildup. Okay. How uh, <laughs> oh, we can do more for buildup? <laughs> this is at the Lava Center, which is it's a totally cool community space, and it's beautiful, and it will be a terrific reading. And I'm so glad you're there, Martine. Well, thank you. I agree. Um, I would like to read something new. Um, I am uh, well on my way into the writing of the next book, of course. So um, you you know my wife, Lauren. Um, 
Also an incredible poet, we should say, and a uh, young adult novelist. Yes. Um, Lauren taught adult literacy in Patterson, New Jersey, at a drug and alcohol rehab facility. Um, She is the tutor in the following poem, new poem, which is simply called Gonzo. Everybody knew Gonzo, his cigarette and cologne, his gold crucifix, the white t-shirt he wore to every meeting. They leaned closer to listen whenever he spoke in the circle at the rehab center, some with eyes shut, seeing his confessions of addictions, demons, and sobriety's angels at war. No one knew Gonzo signed his name with an X. The tutor at the rehab center held up flashcards and sounded out the letters, A, B, C. There was no alphabet song in Gonzo's head, no teacher at the blackboard. He said the letters one by one. At the letter S, he stopped. The tutor studied Gonzo's nose long but not as long as the nose of the Muppet with the same name. S, she said again. Gonzo had no front teeth, no place for his tongue to go. He puffed and sprayed, a man unable to navigate the river of his own name, Gonzales. He hid his face in his hands, unlettered cards in his head, as if the tutor could not see him now. A sob surged through him, a beast chained to the rock of his ribs for 50 years since the days the roosters woke him up for school in Puerto Rico. He wiped his face clean. Gonzo was clean, clean fingernails, clean shaven, clean white shirt. The tutor waited, thinking. He doesn't know his letters, but he knows every street in Patterson by name. She squeezed Gonzo's wrist, so his eyes met hers. She said, you are intelligent. She held up the next flashcard. She said, say T. Martina Spada will be reading from his book, Floaters, a National Book Award winner, and new poems Saturday at the Lava Arts Center in Greenfield from 7 to 9 p.m. That's 324 Main Street in Greenfield. This is a benefit uh, to help support Lava's spoken and written word programming. Uh, the, uh, it is a um, fully accessible location. Uh, Martine. That was an absolutely beautiful and moving poem. Uh, I think you know I have been a, at every one of your readings. I can hear your poems 10, 15 times. I get something new out of it every time. Um, and this is the first time I've heard that poem. And it is just absolutely incredible. Um, I have a question for you, Martine. I view you, and you may disagree <clears throat> with this, but I view you as a, not only as a superb poet, 
but as a superb political poet. You have a you have an intent to, I think, move us to action. And I'm wondering if that is actually part of your goal as a poet, as such an accomplished poet. Oh, absolutely. I, I would agree with that characterization completely. Um, in a poem like the one you just heard, uh, the notion is to give politics a human face, um, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, a name. Um, the idea is to invoke uh, some sense of shared humanity. Uh, and that, that would hopefully be a, a motivation to take some action uh, or at least to feel some empathy when it comes to, uh, to people like the people in the poem. I also have a question for you about your, your, your way of going about creating poems. Do you sit down every day or do you wait for this moment when inspiration really does strike? I don't have the luxury of sitting down every day. I know there are writers who will come um, before the mic and say, well, I get up every morning at 5 a.m. and I milk the dog and then I <laughs> sit down and I write until noon and anybody who doesn't do that isn't really a writer. Well, um, anybody who says that is leaving something very important out of the equation. Somebody else is taking care of that person. Somebody else is doing the cooking. Somebody else is doing the cleaning. Somebody else is doing the driving. Somebody else is taking care of the kids. Somebody else is taking care of the dog. Somebody else is taking care of the bills. You know, it's a, that's a luxury that most of us cannot afford to be such a writer. Most of us are caretakers, whether we happen to be caretakers for our partners or our uh, children or our parents. Um, you know, that, that sort of... That sort of uh, scenario is, is a luxury only a very, very few writers in this country can afford. So my uh, practice, if you want to call it that, is very idiosyncratic. Um, it is catch as catch can. And um, I, I recently talked to Lauren about an experience she had teaching adult literacy in Patterson. I was uh, quite um, struck by the notion of teaching someone who didn't know the alphabet. How do you start? Where do you begin? And how do you deal with the rest of it? And she told me the story. And I started asking certain questions. And she said, you're going to write a poem about this, aren't you? And I said, can I? And she said, yes. So I did. Living with a poet. Um, everything is uh, grist for the mill. I think it's important as well to just to mention, because as much as Martine is a political poet, and I think that's important, uh, I think that sometimes people overlook the fact that he is also one of our great love poets um, and also funny as hell. So I uh, tell everyone that you are in for a treat this Saturday at the Lava Arts Center in Greenfield. You'll hear America's great 
poet, uh, you'll be able to tell your kids and your grandkids that you actually heard Martina Spotter read. You will be moved. You will love it. Uh, it's a full day of poetry. We are going to come back right after the break and talk about what you can do in the afternoon. Another great poetry reading in Northampton. Uh, my guest is Howie Fairstein. He is here. Uh, he will be reading at the Forbes Library that afternoon. You can come see that and then go to Greenfield to have dinner and listen to Martina Spada. Martine, thank you for joining us. At the Lava Center, 7 o'clock this Saturday, a fundraiser uh, for the Lava Center, which is a really important community space. It'll be a beautiful day, a nice drive up to Greenfield for those coming from the south. Of course, those in Greenfield can just walk over to the Lava Center. It is a wonderful community space that will be filled this Saturday evening by a spectacular poet, Martina Spada. We'll be right back. It's supper time and the body is gone. No one knows you like I do. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our NPR segments, Northampton Poetry Radio, with erstwhile poet laureate Rich Michelson who will be reading this Saturday, 2 o'clock at the Forbes Library. Is there a name for this presentation? Why 2 o'clock this Saturday at the Forbes Library, Rich? This is a Voices of Poetry reading at the Forbes Library this Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It is free and accessible. I hope you will come out. Uh, I have the honor of reading with uh, some other poets, uh, say very quickly, Martha McCullough, of Amherst, Massachusetts, is reading. Suzanne Rancourt, who uh, is from Hadley, although Hadley, New York, but I'll say, hey, it's Hadley. That's good enough. That was good. That was well done. We'll say that's local. Anthony Walton, a professor at Bowdoin College and co-editor of the Vintage Book of African-American Poetry. Um, Myself and my dear friend, Howard Fairstein, who has a new book out. It is absolutely beautiful. It is called Stay. And um, it is by Human Error Publishing, which is uh, Paul Richmond's gig. Yes. Uh, for many people who know Paul, also a wonderful lo- uh, area poet. And um, Howie, welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you. I'm good looking to forward to reading with you. Uh, I absolutely love this book. And um, it, it's Publi- published by Human Error Human Publishing. Error. Hey, God, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if you look at the logo, it's even actual cooler because they spell it wrong. Um, <laughs> and then they put it and then they, and then they, Yeah, and then they... Uh, so um, it's Human Error Publishing, Paul Richmond. Uh, they do wonderful books. And... Um, and this is uh, considering the la- we had you on this show last time. I think it was 2015. It was a while ago. Yeah, yes. and you had Gugutz. Gugutz. Gugutz out. And my, my accent was on the wrong syllable there. Um, and uh, that was your first book in like twenty something years. Well, no, actually, uh, there was Dreaming of the Rain in Brooklyn. Okay. That, that came first. That and then Gugutz. Then Gugutz, and then Out of Order. And came. now you're going like Wildflower. I mean, you had a long period of time, and now you're riding up a storm. I'm trying, man. So, I'm getting older, you yeah, know. You've got a lot to put down. Um, let's start with Could a Could I poem. interrupt for one yeah. sec? Gagoots? Gagoots. What is that? 
Well, we, it has a lot of different meanings, but... One, any ones that are okay to say on the air. Yeah, one, <laughs> the, the one that's the best to say on the air has to do with uh, zucchini flowers that are fried. Oh, and, that sounds innocent enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah Bill, we <laughs> talked about this in 2015. <laughs> What's the matter with you, yeah. huh? Jeez, I guess his, his memory goes seven years, eight years. We have to start over and retrain him. Okay, so um, let's get a poem in here. Okay. This is a poem uh, called The Cellist of Northampton based on an actual event that took place about a year ago. And it's for Kareem Wasfi. In the present golden age of mass graves with tombstone engravers struggling to keep up with demand, a cellist from Egypt, conductor of the Iraqi National Symphony, known for wielding his instrument on a scorched stage of mutilated ground, sat down in our New England city for an impromptu concert, and we gathered in the common space of our local emporium by artisanal chocolatiers and Tony clothing shops, Think the fall of the Berlin Wall, Rostropovich performing Bach's cello sarabande at Checkpoint Charlie. And here, Wasfi, bowing horsehair over four strings in a burst of vibrato, a crescendo of song, his music a tonic from madness, mesmerized by the tonal serenity a woman began to sing as a soft rain began falling on Main Street. And I thought, why here? Why a dirge for patients slaughtered in makeshift clinics? Why a simmering requiem for the dead in mayhem's aftermath. Why Baghdad mourning melancholy as he improvised against fear, this serenade for peace. Since no cluster bombs strafe our streets, no drone assassinations or bloody wreckage of indiscriminate terror, but surely one can detect the odor of death. A nine-year-old identified by a coroner, by the heart she painted on her high-top sneakers, a child surviving in her classroom only by covering herself in her slaughtered schoolmate's blood. Reader, you'd be forgiven your disbelief, though not by her. The maestro is welcome even here in our American city of Northampton, of tranquil neighborhood. That is Howard Fierstein. He will be reading this Saturday at Forbes Library in Northampton at 2 o'clock as part of a Voices of Poetry event. Um, I hope everybody can get there. That was absolutely beautiful. It's a poem with local connections, international reverberations. And, and inspired by a real event on the streets of Northampton? Yes, uh, this guy... Kareem Wasi came here. I don't know how he was invited or who invited him. He was supposed to play uh, in the church. Uh, what is it? First churches, I think. And uh, there was a bomb scare or, some, or something. So we said, let's go across the street to Thorns. And we went there, and they allowed us to sit in the common area. And he started and playing. And he just played. And he just played. It was just beautiful. Um, absolutely beautiful. So this poetry reading, Voices of Poetry, which is what, Voices of Poetry? Voices Rich of Michaelson? Poetry is a national organization. I think, what, there's like 5,000, if not more. Over 10,000. Ten, over 10,000 poets. Uh, it's weird. Hey, it, just wipe out 5,000 yeah, poets in a single <laughs> sentence. What well, it, well, you know, I'm a poet, too. 10,000 is <laughs> too much competition. 5,000 I can handle. 
um, but uh, it's uh, it's where we hang out and talk about things, and uh, and they do readings around the country, uh, and uh, Forbes Library has signed up to host an event. It's terrific, Rich Michelson for. Those of you who don't know, Rich is, in addition to the founder of R. Michelson Gower here in Northampton, is an award-winning, award-winning children's book author and a, an award-winning poet as well. You'll be reading this Saturday as part of this event. I'll be reading this Saturday as part of this event. Would you be kind enough to share one of your poems well, with I, us? Um, I will, actually. Um, I did not plan on reading, so I didn't bring a book, but Howie has one that I signed to him, so <laughs> I'll do something short So wait a second, let me just make sure I got this straight. Uh, Howie Fierstein, fabulous poet, is now carrying your books for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> but we're close, we're close. We, we, traded, we traded books yeah, about is, a week ago. Okay, that, close what, enough for poetry. That's what yes. poets do. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I have been a big fan of Howard's work for a long time. So uh, I, because I didn't plan... And we're I'm both gonna, from Brooklyn. I, that's right, we're both from Brooklyn. Uh, right, and as and, my wife uh, likes to say, Rich Michelson... The most unlikely accent for a poet ever, <laughs> but it's fabulous. It's fabulous. So uh, I'm going to read a short poem. I'm going to read a uh, sonnet, uh, which is the last poem in the book, and I'm going to read it because it also uh, happened because of Northampton. Um, you all know the Hungry Ghost Bakery, uh, which is where um, we all meet online every morning. And uh, when I first moved to town, I was uh, the fellow who runs the Hungry Ghost is also a poet. You should know that. Uh, and uh, he was um, selling his bread for free with if you bought a poem for $6. I thought that was a brilliant uh, <laughs> tactic and uh, a way to get your book out there. And uh, I wrote this poem. It's called Recipe. At the bakery, the bread is free, but the poem recited before bagging each loaf costs $6. A stratagem to celebrate life. Add water, leaven, and let the hymn the canticle, the psalm, rise in your throat. Uninvited to my own party, I didn't realize that the heavenly choir singing the cacophony of arguments inside my head was only the quiet couple next door quarreling in bed, what my mother would call a certain recipe for disaster. Of course, everyone deserves health care, shelter, food, even sexual satisfaction. I used to believe in intelligence. Now my wife wants to add loving kindness into the mix. Do we need to hear more from our gods or less? Odd how laughter's portions are larger on the poorest menu. Lord, give us the strength to feed each other and continue. Rich Michelson, reading from his book. The title of that poem, Rich, is? Is um, Recipe. And, and the title of the book is Sleeping As Fast As I Can. That's my new book, just out this month. Again, uh, Rich Michelson and Howie Fierstein will be reading at Forbes Library at 2 o'clock this Saturday, free and open to the public, Voices of Poetry. Voices of Poetry event. I would like to know this, Rich. You introduced that poem by saying it's a sonnet. Had you not said that, I would not know it was a sonnet. What is a sonnet other than, well, what I guess I learned uh, 
a long time ago. <laughs> a sonnet is 14 lines. Is it? A 14-line poem. Uh, any any uh, other uh, restrictions to uh, being Well, a there's a rhyme scheme. So if you, um, if you notice, uh, it's generally, uh, it's either A, B, B, A, uh, A, B, A, B, and that continues through three stanzas, and then you have the last two lines, which kind of sum things up, reflect on the rest of the poem, uh, generally rhyming, uh, which this poem does. Uh, the rhymes are subtle. I think, uh, well, certainly you see them on the page. Uh, and in your ear, my aim is to give you a, a, a slight reverberation of you hear some of the inner rhymes, you hear some of the end rhymes. Um, and uh, But I didn't want them to be too strong uh, because it's not a comic poem uh, where you want uh, hard end rhymes. Right, because the rhymes themselves, often in sonnets, from my point of view, are distracting and often intentionally so. Uh, yeah, it depends what um, what you're trying. I mean, to, Shakespeare was pretty do. good at it. Sha yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> oh yeah, he wrote some sonnets um, and some great ones as well. Uh, and uh, how do I love thee? Let me count the weights, etc. No, that's not. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyways. Uh, this book is very much in forms. The book, my book, has a lot of sonnets. Um, they uh, they give me a structure when the poems are very personal. Uh, they give me a structure in in order to keep my emotions in check. Uh, Last Howie? question, if we might, for uh, uh, Howie Fairstein, who will be reading again two o'clock at the Forbes Library with a number of poets, including Rich Michelson, this Saturday, two o'clock, free and open to the public. I would like to know from you before we go, Howie, are you a poet who waits for inspiration and then you run for a pen and a pad of paper, or do you have a, a more structured approach to your writing? I try to write every day, but it's not a poem every day. Uh, I, I, I just copy down things that strike me if I heard them on the radio, if I was listening to the Bill Newman show or reading the paper. Oh, I can see the next the next collection coming live from WHMP. I love, I love this idol. Yeah, yeah. But uh, inspiration, I don't think, comes as, as uh, readily as it once did. Uh, and I'm hoping that I can recharge that and get it going again. You know? But lately it's been um, a little quiet. Yeah, I just want to say quickly that one of the things I love about your book, which you don't see too much these days, even in my work, poets tend to work by themes. You are all over the place, but in a good way. One poem's about nature, then politics, then sex, then birds, then Brooklyn. I mean, it's really, and it's somehow... It Notice the alliteration, the birds in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Okay, yeah, well, done, the well done. The birds of Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just an absolutely wonderful collection. Congratulations, Howard. Thank you, Rich. I Thank hope you everyone will come this Saturday to Forbes Library, May 20th at 2 o'clock. Uh, we will welcome you. I know who's listening, and if you're not there, I'm going to call you each individually <laughs> and find do. out you better have a note from your doctor. Yes. Rich Michelson, Howie Fairstein, thank you both so much. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
people, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. This is our regular monthly time with Dan Crowley, who is the editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Greenfield Recorder, and the Athol Daily News, part of the Newspapers of New England family. For those who are tuning in for our Have Faith segment, we will return next Thursday. Let me ask you, Dan Crowley, about some of the biggest stories that you are covering, that your newspapers are covering, and, well, arbitrarily, but because it is a really big story, Amherst and the principles and the resignations and the story by a student newspaper. What a story. I'd like to know what kind of resources the Gazette and your other newspapers are putting into this story and how it is playing out either in the newsroom and or on the editorial page. Well, it is a, it is a big story. It's really gone to an, uh, another level in the last uh, several days here. Um, we've had, uh, I think, three staff members that were put on leave uh, while an investigation is going on uh, into... Um, alleged transphobic activities in the school. Um, we've had the, the school superintendent just in the last uh, three days, about two or three days ago, I think, going on leave, uh, a personal leave. Um, and now we had a uh, <coughs> school committee meeting. That went on forever. Yeah, and uh, that uh, pressing for, um, for another school leader to, to resign over this case. Um, you know, it started. It, it, some of this information started coming out late last month. Uh, there was a there was a story on April twenty fifth that we had where somebody brought some information to the school committee about um, some of these activities uh, that have been allegedly happening in the middle school. Um, and then the uh, the graphic, the high school newspaper, came out with a story that that took it to another level. Um, uh, with actually calling out um, some of the counselors. And, specific names. Yeah, specific <laughs> names and allegations. Uh, and then I, I think it was, uh, was it Tuesday night, the school committee meeting? Um, that yeah, sounds yeah, right. It was Tuesday night when... Um, when, when uh, and this is... This, this, the school, and the school committee meeting was about, in Amherst, was about finding an interim to uh, take the reins and to be the... CEO of, of that uh, institution uh, until the present uh, superintendent can return. I, I'd love to know from you, Dan Crowley, as an editor, uh, you relied, you reported, your papers reported, what had been reported from a student newspaper. Yeah. Interesting to me that a student newspaper breaks this story. Uh, it what, is. Your, feel, it, your feelings, your thoughts yeah. about that? Well, I think it's great. I think it, it happens. Um, and one of the reasons, one of the, th we, sometimes we'll, we'll um, report on other news organization um, reports. But in this case, the, the school department, had the school district had responded to that story. Um, and the superintendent and... Um, and maybe some school committee members. So there was a, there was an immediate response to that. So that 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 was worth reporting as well. It wasn't wasn't just the graphic report that we. The graphic is the name of the newspaper. Of the newspaper that we that we put out into the newspaper. The school the school committee the school leadership 
um, started reacting to that. And did you, it, it, did you let me ask you this? Did you find it at all extraordinary that the Amherst school system actually published this student newspaper with these stories, an investigation into the school system itself with very serious accusations. I thought that was, you know, kudos to the Amherst school system that we didn't have to go through. We're censoring it and yeah. play that out. Yeah, I don't know the dynamics of, of that in the school system, how, what kind of uh, freedom the graphic has to, to publish what it, what it comes up with. But in another way, I'm well, it's part of. Let me just say this: it's part of a curriculum. So the school, in fact, has substantial control, editorial control, because it's part of the yeah. curriculum. It's not an independent extracurricular or non-school-based activity. It's right. very much embedded in the school, and they went ahead, and the faculty advisor apparently approved it, and it was published. Amazing to me. Yeah, and congratulations for doing all that. <clears throat> yeah, in another way, I'm not surprised because often when you're closest to the source, uh, closest to the heat source, um, you're going to have access um, to, to people, to information, and, you know, the students being in the school district um, are, are, are there, you know, maybe some of the high school students have siblings that are middle school students. And, and this is a middle school publication. No, it's a high, it's school. A high, it's school, a high school publication about the middle about school. About the middle Sorry, school. Sorry, my, yeah. my misspoke. So, so um, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're close to the source, when, you, when you've got a lot of access like that, um, uh, and, you know, that can happen. Uh, this is Dan. I had a question for you about the use of anonymous sources in uh, articles, because I was reading this uh, newspaper, The Graphic, uh, article and they used quite a few of them. What what do you how do you handle anonymous sources when you're uh, when you're at the Daily Hampshire Gazette? Is there a standard policy that you use? Yeah, we have a pretty high bar for using anonymous sources. We rarely use them, um, but again, in this case, the school department came out with some very uh, strong responses to that story, and so we were able to report on it in that way. Mm. Has the school system actually denied the content of the graphic? article? Not that I'm aware of. There is an investigation going on. So as the editor and having a big story on your hands, how do you go about a story? How do you go about covering a story that is filled, at least initially, with anonymous sources, with an investigation that is private? It sounds to me like you could wake up in the morning with some heartburn, Dan Crowley. Well, we have a we have a pretty um, trusted beat reporter in Amherst, Scott Mersbach. He's been there for over twenty years, and he, he he's 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 been around the block before, and he knows you know he's going to be following this story and uh, and 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 covering it as as it develops. It's a developing story still, and and uh, as you see in the last forty eight hours, a lot's happened. And. Anything to the problems that uh, Scott Mersbach will have in terms of getting sources who will go on the record and talk to him about what is happening, what will happen next? And well, let's let's leave it there. Well, I think I think you saw Tuesday night some of some people involved in, in the schools have come out and started talking more. I think um, the school nurse has some pretty strong uh, comments in this piece that was out this morning, um, about what she's been seeing in the, in the school in terms of the, um, climate. She didn't get into specifics, but, but she did indicate that there's there, I think she used the word, there are problems here. Interesting to me is this, that if this were totally accurate and I have no reason to believe that it's not, but if it were totally accurate, how could the persons who are named not resign? 
I mean, they're saying, we're, we're staying. And that was in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. There's a disconnect there for me. Yeah, well, they have they had that opportunity to respond. They 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 did. Res- I think two of the three that were put on leave, the counselors did respond. Um, I hope I have that right. I'm not sure all three did, but um, yeah, they've they've uh, those two that did comment uh, denied these allegations, and they 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 have a right to a fair investigation, and and we'll see where that goes. Um, but um, it, that's a that's a personal choice that they have whether they want to resign or not. I think this story is going to go national in the same way that the East Hampton uh, school superintendent search did, or that was really because of who rests on the claims of microaggression and the use of the word ladies, and that was really kind of a one-off in that way. It's hard to say. It's unpredictable. Sometimes you know, we'll, we stop making predictions about how big a story will go and how far it will spread, but uh, sometimes you, you don't even – sometimes there are sleepers where, where wow – why is everybody so interested in this story? We didn't we didn't anticipate that. Um, but then others are like, well, this this yeah, we expect that there's going to be a lot of reaction to stories. It's 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 hard to say sometimes. I mean, with the East Hampton story, I could one of the most surprising things for me, I couldn't believe that there are people apparently tuning in from Australia and England. Uh, yeah, don't in, they have anything the, going on in Australia <laughs> and England? They've got to pay attention to East the, Hampton, Massachusetts. Into the Zoom <laughs> sessions uh, that were going on, so. Pretty interesting. Let me turn your attention, if I might, Dan Crowley, to another story covered front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Bombex has been closed down by the fire department in Northampton. I read the article, and I was left scratching my head saying, I don't understand. This building is used for church services. It's used as a musical venue. It's used for many different types of activities. But all of a sudden, there's a fire hazard, maybe, yes. Well, I guess enough for the fire Department to say you can't go on with your shows at great expense to Bombex. Uh, safety, of course, is always a paramount consideration. What's your take on this story? Well, there's an issue in this. There's a there's an underlying issue in the story that you keep seeing pop up over and over again. And, and what is a nightclub? And then I think when you have something defined as a nightclub, it sets uh, it triggers a, a number of fire prevention uh, requirements. And, and in this case, that question has come up. Um, it's, it's raised by one of the city officials in here. Is it a nightclub? If it is, does it need a sprinkler system? Um, and I think, um, you know, a lot of this is mention of it in here, the station nightclub fire about 20 years ago, um, which, which, I th- which changed um, fire prevention laws in Massachusetts, uh, if I recall. Uh, so that's that's a that's a, an issue, and I think this, from what Steve Farr reported, he's our arts and culture reporter doing a a, a hard news story here. Um, <clears throat> the connection being that Bombix is a is an arts venue. Um, I think uh, was, they were taken by surprise by it. I think it was an unannounced uh, visit or inspection, and uh, they're supposed to be meeting this morning to, to the parties are meeting this morning to learn more about what's going on here. I do think that there's more to be done here with the the gray area, uh, some might call it, um, of of nightclubs. Well, b- because uh, it was not so long ago that a nightclub in a church did not seem to be a compa- compatible use, but that is in fact how the building is being used now, and successfully and surviving because of that mixed use. Yeah, I don't I don't know how much uh, nighttime. Uh, 
Yeah, there's a nightclub. Kind, of cla- kind of classic nightclub, nightclub environment that's going on at Bombix. But, yeah, I don't either. Um, but but I, again, I do think there's more to explore there uh, from a from a um, reporting uh, standpoint in terms of uh, how fire departments are going about defining nightclubs. And, and uh, I think I had heard that some of these issues have been popping up recently in Holyoke. Yeah, well, which really looks for that economic development. We're talking with Dan Crowley, editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder and the Athol Daily News. We'll be right back with more with the editor right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Berkshire East Resort? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Get outside and enjoy yourself this summer with mountaintop zip lining, an aerial adventure park, and mountain coaster certificates from Berkshire East Resort in Charlemont. Your summer adventure is here. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Welcome back, landscape contractors. Winesick Nursery in Hadley is ready to take your orders for trees, shrubs, perennials, mulch, soil, compost, and landscape supplies. Winesick Nursery offers the area's largest and healthiest selection of landscape plants. Order now before the spring rush begins and we'll hold your order until pickup. Visit Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. We are the grower. Come to the source. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dan Crowley, editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder and the Athol Daily News. I'd like to turn our our attention, if we could please, Dan, to a story in yesterday's Gazette, which was that a report came out about what happened with uh, Hampshire County Jail and House of Correction employees, uh, a story that was really big during the campaign and, well, it turns out that what you reported and what was sus- suspected turns out to have been true. Yeah, the, the, uh, it was a former deputy superintendent at the Hampshire County Jail had been in a, um, involved in a, a police report. It was noted in a police report in Southampton uh, last uh, 
summer. And um, Brian Steele, a former reporter at the Gazette, had done a report on that. Um, and it was, it was in advance of the September primary for sheriff, the sheriff's race. Uh, that person resigned in August. And the accusation was, was that the number two person at the jail and House of Correction had been interfering and in promoting the election of the sheriff. And this was used by Sheriff Kaylin's uh, uh, opponents, uh, not ultimately successfully to, de- to uh, defeat him in the election, but it was a big deal when it happened. Yeah, and, and there was a consultant that was hired, apparently we found out. Uh, the sheriff's office put some information out who, who found that this uh, the, the findings of that review were that the um, former jail employee had violated um, state law by engaging in political activity. And um, the report uh, talked about um, how she had used her official position in, in an attempt to intimidate a jail employee who supported one of Sheriff Kaylin's uh, challengers. Uh, also, there were some um, findings of having removed and tampered with campaign signs in somebody's yard. And, well, turns out that the resignation was appropriate and that the report that just came out substantiates the allegations that were made. Yeah, uh, the, the jail employee said that the Ethics Commission had cleared um, her of, uh, of anything, but this independent consultant's report, I think it was... Uh, a man named Daniel Bennett of Comprehensive Investigations and Consulting, LLC, um, uh, did, a, did a review for the Sheriff's Department. We have 30 seconds left. Can you tell us, are, will the Gazette be following up with the East Hampton superintendent story? Is there more to go on that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're staying on top of it. Emily Thurlow, East Hampton reporter, um, has been, been on that and uh, doing a great job. And we'll, as, things, uh, as things develop there, we'll be, we'll be getting, the, getting the news out on it. I need to ask, do you have inside sources? Do you have anonymous sources who call the Gazette and say, hey, here's what's really happening? We, <laughs> we get news tips. The, you know, oh, news tips. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. The longer the reporters are on beats, the more sources that they, they develop and, and, and the more connections they make. And I think if, as long as we, we do our jobs and we're fair, people recognize that and they want to talk to us. Thank you so much, Dan Crowley. Really appreciate your being with us every month. River down the still water and ride a pack of dogs. I'm going to break. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. This is the time we have for Brian Adams in a segment we called Science and Sensibility. Brian Adams was on Buzz's show, The Afternoon Buzz, for a long time, I think since the beginning of that show, and we're just so pleased that he is with us every every week for this science and sensibility. Brian Adams, for those of you who don't know of him, is a professor emeritus of environmental science at Greenfield Community College, where he taught for many, many years and was a beloved teacher. He's the author, I think, of some three uh, novels. They're romantic comedies. Uh, They star environmental activists, Love in the Time of Climate Change, book I loved, and Kaboom, which I really liked, Offline, the only one of your books which I have not read, but I will. uh, and Brian Adams brings with him and to us every week uh, a really, really important, interesting guest. Uh, 
one of my favorite people to hear and watch uh, locally in the media is with us today. And uh, I'm just so happy to have with us uh, and this very special guest. I'll leave the pleasure of the introduction to you, Brian Adams. Thank you, Bill. That was very kind words. Uh, yeah, today we're going to talk about something we love to talk about even when we have nothing else to talk about, nothing in common with other people. What do you talk about? You talk about the weather. And joining us today is WHMP's own Brian Lapis. Brian is the weatherman for Channel 22, NBC, down in Springfield. He does RSI. He does WHMP. He does one more, MAS? Yes, there's a station in Springfield that we do. Yep. Yeah, so Brian, thank you so much for being on the show, and welcome to the, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So let's talk very basic stuff. Yeah. What the heck is weather? And why is there weather? Why is it every day exactly the same? What makes New England in, in particular so diverse in terms of weather? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think we, we do live in a special part of the world here in the uh, mid-latitudes of the earth. Uh, we have uh, mountains near us. We have oceans near us. So when I go and talk to third graders at, at, at schools – here in the valley, I like to say that we're kind of bottom dwellers in an ocean of air here. So we have an atmosphere, and we have this earth that is just in that sweet spot between being too cold and too hot in relation to our distance from the sun. And the earth is spinning on its axis, and uh, as that axis spins around and as the earth rotates around the sun, we have these amazing four seasons. Getting back to that spinning on its axis thing as the earth spins that kind of moves the air around so we we have this fluid that is our atmosphere that's constantly moving on either side of the equator um, there is transfer of heat and transfer of cold and all of this is interacting to make our weather happen and um, we live in this particular part of the world where we do have Four seasons and in our interaction with the ocean to our east and the land to our north and to our west puts us in a special spot where we get winter, spring, summer, and fall. And I like when I talk to these third graders, I like to say, well, you know, you like to go to Florida on vacation, but a place like Florida, they have maybe two seasons of weather. We have four seasons of weather. We can get um, snow and rain and uh, we can get uh, dry weather here. We can have prolonged wet weather, prolonged cold weather, prolonged hot weather. We can even get tropical weather here uh, when the conditions are right. So it is a, it's a, it, for me, it's an invigorating place to live and an invigorating place to do our work. Let's talk about um, the changing weather and particularly climate change. Sure. Um, one, there's a big difference between weather, like today, and you know, what is the forecast for today and climate itself? Can you talk about the difference between climate and weather and what's going on in terms of climate change? You've been up doing this job for 27 years. Yeah, almost 27. Almost 27. You've seen things change. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I, going back to the third grade teacher uh, analogy, uh, I was in a school um, recently, I think, or within the last couple of years, and um, this is this great analogy that the teacher brought up that Weather is what you get. Climate is what you expect. So weather is our 
day to day, like today. Uh, by the way, we had a record low temperature this morning of 27 degrees at Westover Air Reserve Base oh, in Chicopee. Like 27 right. in the middle of May. Right. Ooh. So, wait a second. The weather gods didn't read. It's May. It's supposed to be right. nice and warm. And, and, and it's your fault, right? Yeah, You're the one who's... It is my <laughs> fault. I'll take the blame for it. At least, at least we don't have a, any severe weather coming through today. I'll live with a record low of 27 if we don't have severe thunderstorms and tornadoes. So anyway, um, you know, so we have this day-to-day features that we live with, you and know. That's, and that's, that's the weather. weather. And then you take the, the summation of that over a long period of time, and that's the climate. And what we're seeing is that the climate is changing, and in particular around here, and actually everywhere, we're seeing that our temperatures are warming. And in particular around here, speaking broadly in the Northeast, um, we're also seeing that we are getting a bit wetter. And we can maybe we can talk a little bit more about this in detail um, later in the, in the broadcast, but the heaviest rain is becoming heavier, or at least we're seeing more frequent heavy rainstorms here in the Northeast. Does that make your job more difficult, climate change, not n- n- all these crazy extremes of weather? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, what was I saying before we went on the air? I think that um, uh, my job is becoming more difficult in other ways. I think that the world is much smaller. And I think that as we, as our technology gets better in forecasting, I think people are demanding more from that technology. So I think in that way, our job is getting harder. I do think that, um, especially when it comes to these precipitation events, my boss doesn't like it when we, when we say events, but when we have these storms, when we forecast rain per, per, per se, or when we forecast thunderstorms, um, anecdotally, I feel like there's a much better chance that we're going to have heavier precipitation and more potentially damaging weather with these storms. I'd like to follow up on Brian's question. You use models. As a meteorologist, uh, you use models and use computer models to make predictions about the weather, to do your forecast. With climate change and warming, does that make the models inaccurate and therefore your job more difficult? No. I think that that's, that's that's where the rub is in this question is that I think the models are doing a pretty good job of handling this. I think it's it's more of like, oh, yeah. It's just going to be another one of those heavy rain storms that we're seeing. The models are a little bit more tricky in that um, we live in a very small sliver of the world, and 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 you know uh, always the models give us suggestions. They're forecasts; they're not guarantees. So I think that the models are still doing a pretty good job of of forecasting the weather, and they're and we're seeing the changing climate in in, in many of those models. So let's talk about how you make a forecast. Sure. Um, you go to work. What do you do? What do you look at? Who, who do you turn to? Sure. Uh, so I uh, typically my day starts around 2.30 in the afternoon. I'm there from 2.30 to about midnight, Monday through Friday in a typical week. And uh, the first thing I do is I deal with the science. So I come in and uh, literally I have a piece of paper that has seven days lined up on it. So I'll start with tonight and work my way through the forecast for next Thursday and I uh, use computer forecast models, weather forecast models that are available publicly on the internet. I use a public site. We actually have one proprietary website that I use as well. And I'll look at, let's see, one, two, three, four different forecast models. And I'll look at 
so what those forecast models do is that um, basically what the forecast models do is they um, sample the air. So we have um, air sampling sites, uh, weather sampling sites, ships at sea, airplanes. We have weather balloons that the National Weather Service and other organizations send up through the sky, and they sample. These are balloons we don't shoot down? These are <laughs> correct. At least we don't shoot them down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, so basically what those computer forecast models do is they take that sampling of the atmospheric conditions right now, and they say, okay, this is happening right now at 10.15, although we wouldn't sample at 10.15. Uh, this is happening right now. Let's move this um, weather, given the laws of physics and mathematics and other assorted atmospheric science, given what's happening right now, this is going to happen in six hours and then 12 hours and 18 and 24. And we have some forecast models that go out to 240, mo- 240 hours. And there are other you know, models that, that climatologists and long-range forecasters use that look out you know, monthly and seasonally that are, those models are also publicly available. So that's what I use. And I'll look at, you know, on a typical day, I'm really concerned about the surface because my customers, our viewers, are surface dwellers. So a lot of what I'm looking at is surface-based. But, you know, I'll look at the jet stream. So I'm looking at weather information and weather forecasts, the computer forecast models from the surface to 30,000 feet up. And we're looking at What's the wind doing? What's the relative humidity doing? How much precipitation is there? You know, where are things positioned in terms of low and high pressure? You know, all of these things uh, factor into the forecast. And I literally write it down on a piece of paper, 20th century style. And then when I'm done with that, that's kind of, that's the foundation for everything else that I do for the day. So uh, the weather that I I do, I I will uh, call in the forecast or record the forecast here for WHMP, for the other radio stations we use. We have an internet website. We have a website that um, we put a forecast in for. And then we do the TV stuff. So I create graphics because those are the, the, the pictures to the story that I tell every day. So we create graphics that, for the most part, are very similar. Um, we use a, a very similar template every day. But um, uh, occasionally we'll change those up given the, the weather uh, situation of the day. And then um, I go on TV. I wish uh, listeners could see Brian. His arms are <laughs> flailing right. around. He's gesturing. Yeah. He's making all sorts of... Of, uh, he gives of, us hints with air quotes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that really leads me to this this question of of, uh, of weather forecasting and being a weatherman as performance art. Um, I taught for years, and you know, some days I'd go into my class and I think, God, I just have to get up for this. You know, I um, yeah. You are a, a scientist. You're yeah. studying the weather, but you're a performing artist. People are looking for you for the science and for the weather, but also for entertainment. Um, do you have strategies? Do you think, all right, today I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna leap into the air. Right. I'm gonna do this with my arms. How does that work? Yeah, I think. Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question, Brian, is that my bosses very rarely um, ask me, "Hey, is there anything that we can do to help you learn more about weather?" <laughs> they don't ask me that. They are always concerned about what's in the presentation. So. Um, we need to make our presentation compelling so people watch our product and then buy the products that our advertisers are investing in our station to sell. 
So, I mean, not to be crass about that, but that is what the business that we're in, right? Um, so, yes, a lot of this is presentation. A lot of it is strategy around, okay, what is the best way to talk about drought or brush fire danger or climate change, which I think is which is something that's very important to me, the fact that we do reporting on climate change, and we probably don't do enough at 22 News on climate change, but we're working on it. Um, so yes, there is a lot of performance art, and in terms of um, of of getting up for the for the broadcast, I think for me still the most fun part of my day is when the little red light goes on on the camera, because I, at my heart I am a broadcaster. I started my career in a radio station just like this one in Willimantic, Connecticut, and um, you know that is still the the most compelling and and energizing part of my day. And there are days where I'm not feeling well. Under the or, weather? Yeah, under the weather. Um, so that will happen, but there is still is that that kind of, that I don't know, that zazz that comes with being on TV and being on the radio. I mean, I would probably be half asleep right now if I wasn't here. <laughs> well, know? I'm glad you're fully awake yeah. and, and, uh, and with us all the way. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about or ask you about one of the most consequential weather forecasts ever made. And that was a forecast for the D-Day invasion of, of France in 1944. Maggie comes fleet foot, face full of black soot, talking at the heat, put plants in the bed, but the phone's tapped anyway. Maggie says the many say they must bust an early man. Orders from the DA, look out, kid, don't matter what you did. But walk on your tiptoes, don't tie no bows. Better stay away from those who carry around a fire hose. Keep a clean nose, wash the clean clothes, you don't need. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue Science and Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams, who has with us today a very special guest, meteorologist. Uh, one, well, Brian and Brian. Brian Lapis from Channel 22, NBC Weatherman, and our very own WHMP Weatherman. Um, June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of D-Day. Um, the, the invasion was launched because a weather forecaster gave Eisenhower the thumbs up. There was no computers. There were no satellites. There was no radar. This is probably the most consequential weather forecast ever that really turned the tides of history. How did they predict weather with none of this modern technology? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, you know, oftentimes, if I'm talking with about weather with folks who are um, older, you know, they say that we have it pretty easy these days with all of the technology that we have. And that's probably true, that our technology in the 21st century is, uh, makes our forecasting a lot easier. And that, in those days, there was a lot of um, surface-based uh, analysis, so they didn't have satellites, obviously. There may have been some aerial analysis that they had from um, either, you know, blimps or balloons or planes or that sort of thing. And, uh, I'm sure that there were a, there was a staff of meteorologists that were working particularly on that event 
and around the weather for that. So there was probably a lot of brain power that was going into that particular event. And quite frankly, there may have been some luck that was involved in that too, that they um, got it right at the right time. Uh, but certainly um, the science back then was much different than it is now. And uh, while they, st- they had those analysis tools, it was probably a lot of a lot of just a lot of energy around that one particular event, and a lot of brains on that 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 made that made the difference on that day. Even with all the technology available to you now, how far in advance can you go with sort of a reliable prediction? You were talking about a week is what you generally give. Yeah, we do a seven day forecast. And how do you? I'm, I'm amazed that you can even get to the seventh day of that. Right. But is there any reliability in going past that week? Yeah, you know, and it, I think oftentimes it's a good question, and the and the question is the answer is it depends. So, uh, for instance, we're forecasting rain for Saturday, and here we are on Thursday, and I still can't tell you exactly when that rain is going to happen or uh, exactly how much rain we're going to get. But as we get beyond forty eight hours, thirty six to forty eight hours, I think we're generalizing. But especially in the summertime when we have these. Um, rainstorms that kind of traverse the the continent and come through, and they're kind of quick and brief. Uh, those are a little bit more difficult to forecast because they're smaller features. Our forecast models are much better at picking up big things. Like for instance, our skill with hurricane forecasting is pretty good. You know, the Hurricane Center, that's a National Weather Service agency out of Miami, has done a really great job of predicting these larger storms. Uh, and where they're going to go and how they're going to get there. They have dedicated models that focus the, their their resolution and their sampling on those storms, and that helps. But another example, uh, different example, but similar in, in some ways, is snowstorms. So in February, if we see um, a storm six or seven days out, there's a pretty good chance that that storm is going to be in our neighborhood six or seven days out. There are... There are, you know, we have the potential to to bust that far in advance, but oftentimes, you know, if we see a, a fairly large snow situation for six days out, something happens here in six days. So our skill with um, six to seven days, five days is becoming much better, but you have to, you know, there still is some some margin for error out there. I think that the great example is, um, you know, you hear about a carpenter who you know, is building a house, and at the beginning of the run of the of creating the roof, they're an eighth of an inch off, and at the other end of the house, they're two inches off because the error is offset. If there's a forecast error at the beginning of these forecasts, the beginning runs of these forecast models, that error can be amplified mm. toward the end. So I guess that's a long and convoluted answer to your question, but the the question the answer is our forecasting skill is getting better, but you know, if you're looking at something that's seven to ten days away, it's more of a it's more mm. of a guideline. It's not a guarantee. No guarantees in the in the weather world, right? Do you see any technological advances coming down the pike that will that will radically change things? I'm hoping that we will. Um, first of all, the 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 weather forecasting modeling technology is getting better all the time. So the government is investing a lot of money, and, and now it's become a global thing. The, the, the European Union has a great uh, – the European forecast model. Maybe you've heard of this if you've watched the Weather Channel. They have a great forecast model. The forecasting models are getting better all the time. I think what's interesting is that our network of radars um, – 
that the National Weather Service uses across the country. These are 1988 vintage radars. There have been software updates with these radars, so the technology has improved. But I think I'm hoping that soon we will get into the to having smaller radars um, more closely spaced across the country. Our area is a prime example of a place that really could use a radar that's a little bit closer. Our radars are based, uh, the, the warning radar for our area, for Northampton and Greenfield, is based in Norton, Massachusetts. There's another radar that's in Albany, New York, and there's also one that is in, uh, on Long Island, Brookhaven, uh, New York. Right. So we're, we are in a big hole here in, in the valley in terms of radar. We could really use a radar in Keene, New Hampshire, or in Holyoke, Massachusetts for what, us. What is a radar? Yeah. So a radar is a radio transmitter that transmits a radio signal, and this signal is tuned, in the case of weather radar, to bounce off of hydrometeors, which are raindrops or snowflakes or sleet pellets or hail pellets. or that The radar is tuned to bounce off of that water that's in the sky. And we have a radar, and what happens is that radio transmission goes out, it bounces off of the, the raindrop, and it scatter, it bounces back and is received at the radar site, and we can see that rain or snow in the sky. And with Doppler radar, which we use, the Doppler radar also records um, whether or not that target is moving away or toward the radar so we can see motion in the storm, and that helps us to determine whether or not we have a tornado. And there are other, re- there are other ways that we use the, the, the motion detector in the Doppler radar, but that's the primary reason. So it's a, it's a radio transmitter that bounces back signals to us, and we can see that on a screen. And I know you and your team won uh, an award for forecasting and covering on June 1st, 2011 for the tornado that came through with and really saved lives with that with that forecast. Yeah, thanks. That was a uh, an intense day. <laughs> that was that was my D day. Wow, you know. Wow, and you can still see the remnants of that when you look at Mount Tom and all the trees that came down. I have a zillion other questions, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Oh, that's too bad. We'll have to have you back. We've been talking with Brian Lapis. He's a Channel Twenty Two NBC weatherman, and more importantly, our WHMP weatherman as well. Brian, thank you so much. Let me ask you to lead or end with one final question. Third week in August, I'm going to the Cape. Tell me quickly, nice weather, right? Uh, Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. 82 and sunny. Oh, perfect. A little breeze in the afternoon, it'll be great. All all week, all week. (laughs) All week. Thank you so much, Brian. We appreciate having you. Yeah, because remember, whether it's cold or whether it's hot, we must have weather, whether or not.
This is our weekly segment, Take 5. We have as our segment hosts with Buzz Dubs, our correspondents. I love having correspondents. Another <laughs> And Ruth Griggs, she is the president of the Northampton Jazz Festival. She is a principal in a communications company, which we really appreciate. And this is her time with us. And we really appreciate uh, what she brings to this valley, what she brings to Western Massachusetts, and what she brings to all of us on this show and well, we cannot we cannot overlook the extraordinary guests that you bring. Well, one thank of, you. One of whom thank is with us today. The lovely pleasure of the introduction is yours. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. I I feel buoyed up for the day after that, Bill. Thank you. So I am thrilled to have uh, someone who is new to me in the jazz world in the Valley and. Uh, his name is Richie Barche, and he is a world percussionist. I first heard him a f- uh, about a month ago at the Blue Room at City Space in East Hampton playing with the Curtis Brothers, one of Carol Abbey Smith's jazz nights. And I was blown away by his inventiveness, by his creativity, um, always in the tune, but in a delightful, fresh way. So Richie is in our studio. He has a little something here he's going to play in a little bit. But thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your talent with us and helping the the listeners learn more about who Richie Barche is and, and the gifts that you have to offer. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Right. So, um... You have been dubbed uh, a player to watch by Jazz Times. It's true. Um, and you've been described as an eclectic percussionist. So I was amazed to read about your world travelers travels and the influences that you've had on your percussion playing. So tell us a little bit about your history and how you got into this world of percussion and... Mm-hmm some of your major influences. Sure. Um, well, it all started in the kitchen kitchen cabinets. Um, I, was a, I was a pots and pans baby. Um, did a lot of playing <laughs> in the kitchen. I did that with my kids. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a drummer and teacher in the Hartford area named Rob Gottfried. He goes by Rob the Drummer. And uh, my mom got me hooked up with lessons with Rob early on. I was six years old. And I really owe... My drumming inspiration and my early musical influences to the Hartford Springfield area. Um, I grew up in West Hartford, um, so being in, in Florence, Northampton is is kind of close to home again. Um, but yeah, I really really grew up uh, uh, hearing the sounds of of Afro Caribbean jazz and jazz in West Hartford, and through meeting the Curtis Brothers, uh, who are from Windsor, Connecticut, also big big musical names in the Hartford area. Uh, I met them when I was 13. That's right. I forgot that you'd known them since mm-hmm. you were. So Af- Afro-Cuban, Afro, um, n- n- you know, rhythms back in the whenevers mm-hmm. in West Hartford area. Yeah. From where? Was it that just from the Hartford jazz scene? I owe it to the Curtis brothers. Um, they were, you know, I, I mean, I, I, w- I played jazz in the schools, in public schools. I played in jazz band at Hall High School. Um, so it's big into jazz there 
But um, the Curtis brothers, through their parents, um, Ted and Abby Curtis, George Fuentes, who's another involved parent, a guy named Ed Fast, who was our coach, uh, percussionist. Um, who we, played at the Northampton Jazz Festival a few years back. Right, right. Um, we just had this sort of incredible luck of being surrounded by these great influences and um, listening to the music of Eddie Palmieri, Cachao, um, Mario Bozo, Chucho Valdez. Um, wow. And then at, in 97, so when I was 13 years old, we ended up in Havana, Cuba at the invitation of Chucho. And uh, we played at the Havana Jazz Festival back when you couldn't really go there. At, at age what? Well, I was 13. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and a lot of the band members were around that age as well. That's remarkable. So. Bill, you seem to have a I do have a, a question, a burning for, question. For, for Richie yeah. Bechet. You're talking about becoming a musician at a very young age. You could have picked any number of instruments to start with. There's a guitar. There are keyboards. There are uh, wind instruments of various sorts. You decided early on that you were a percussionist. Why? How? I don't know how to explain talent or someone's uh, drive to be interested in a certain thing, but I have developed a certain belief that, that some of us who become musicians are born with a certain sensitivity in the ear and a way of hearing things. Maybe it's even too much sensitivity to loud noises or too much. Um, so I just, I, I come from a, a family of science education type folks. Um, my grandfather, who was born in Southwest Poland, did, was self-taught on, on violin and um, keyboard, but uh, my mother played concert organ. I just... Uh, so you have music like in sound. your roots. Yeah. Yeah, and it And there. it came out through you in the form of percussion. Yeah. Yeah. So... Can I just follow that up? Because I, sure. I understand your musical influence. I understand your family now some. Sure. Uh, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I understand some of your uh, genetic makeup a little bit. Um, mm. the, these are, these are their music genes. But mm. why the drums? Mm. Why percussion? Gosh, it's so fun. You get to bang things as a kid? I think like a lot of kids. Kid. I was one of those kids that made sound out of a drum and instantly got to play for people, with people, have people enjoy it, and there's just some kind of bug you get when that well, happens. Well, and if you want to hear Richie Barchet's playing... Go to RichieBarchet.com or stick around because we're going to hear a little something here in the show. But it is, it, it is magical what he creates. And I want to talk about that because, yeah, from, from age 13, you know, at the, the Havana, you know, Cuba Jazz Festival, he then ends up going overseas for this State Department. Talk mm. about that. What was that all yeah. about? Yeah. I've been overseas, I think, three or four times in one of these um, American Musical Envoys tours. So our own government, U.S. State Department, still funds bands and other arts, or arts groups to go overseas, hosted by foreign embassies, hosted by U.S. embassies, and present concerts and workshops. And uh, with the Curtis brothers, Sakai and Lucas, we went to India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh in, oh man, 2006, I think. Um, I went back again with a band called Matuto. Clay Ross, who now runs a band, Ranky Tanky, played in town. Uh, we went to What's the name of the band? Ranky Tanky. Oh, thank you. I thought, um, I thought that's what you said. That's I what did. I said, <laughs> yes. Um, Clay Ross uh, and Matuto, we went and we played Brazilian bluegrass music uh, under American roots sort of genre. And we played in Africa in five different countries, uh, Mozambique and then four uh, countries on the west side. 
So what yeah. what was your mission there? Was it to was it to blend and to learn and to to create and experience and improvise with the musicians of that country, Absolutely. or to bring American music to them? What what was it? Yeah, you know, uh, they set it up in a beautiful way. It's the way I would have done it either either way. But I, I go there as a as someone who wants to learn. Um, so obviously, a drummer going to Africa is a pinnacle life experience um, for someone who has never been to Africa before. Um, so yeah, we were there to perform and share some of our music, but also, uh, you know, I was in Cote d'Ivoire, I was in Ghana and Cameroon, and we got to just have these incredible experiences with drummers and, and music school students and, uh, learn a lot. Yeah. So with, with these influences from, from all of these countries around the world, um, how, I mean, I mean again. I know your your drumming and your percussion, and and you can you can hear and feel and experience and watch you integrate and weave all of these different influences into your drumming in this seamless, delicate way. Um, is there anything in particular that you feel has had the strongest influence on your compositions? Mm. Your you know in your in the way that you approach mm -hmm. percussion. You know, I think. My compositions have been influenced by my interest in world drumming, uh, global drumming uh, from different cultures. So the Afro-Caribbean thread of my playing came in early. Also jazz big band. I'm not going to leave out Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, some of those names um, where in middle school I got very influenced by. But at New England Conservatory, uh, where I went from 01 to 05 in Boston, um, I was exposed to Jerry Leak, who's a tabla player. Um, a student of George Ruckert and Ali Akbar Khan, respectively. And uh, North Indian tabla rhythms became a huge influence of my first album, Homework, uh, which I did in 2004. So those, those rhythms, particularly the Indian subdivisions and ways of composing, I feel like once I had the, once I had the drumming um, sort of sensibility, all these different, different cultures sort of find their way into my compositions. Well, I could. I'd love to know. Do you prefer playing with a band with other instruments, or do you prefer playing primarily with drummers and other percussionists? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know if I've thought about that question, Bill, but uh, I I think I prefer playing with a band because I like how how drumming complements tone and other instruments and melody. Yeah. And and obviously you were immersed in the international scene, you know, back in the late 2000s after you finished the New England Conservatory. And now it's 2023. Mm. And does that does that influence stay with you as a musician or does it fade or does it change? Because mm. obviously it must have been so intense mm. during your, your travels and when you just came back. But... But what's it like now? Can you talk to that? Gosh, I don't know if I can. I mean, it's it's just, it's like learning language. It's just building a, a steady accumulation of knowledge that you're not even sure where you're drawing from. Um, but I will say that because drums are such a, a felt sort of instinctual medium, um, any drummers I'm exposed to, whether it's seeing Elvin Jones a month before he passed away in, in Oakland, California, or going to Mozambique and hearing tap dancers, um, all those sounds, they just imprint themselves on me um, as a musician. They're just cool. in there. So maybe we can hear a little bit of those impressions on you when you 
spend a few minutes playing the cymbal before the break. Sure. I brought a cymbal. Um, you had mentioned Max Roach, that we're getting ready to celebrate uh, the centennial of his birth. And then when we come back, we're going to listen to some music. And when we come back, I want to hear about what you're doing at the parlor room, which I think really, really will interest all of us who are here today. Amazing. Remarkable. <laughs> a tr two drumsticks and a cymbal. Oh, my goodness. We'll be right back. <laughs> You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue Take 5 with Ruth Griggs and her very special guest, Richie Bache. Thank you, Bill. Yes, that was an amazing cymbal solo which I personally had never heard such a long cymbal solo. And I appreciate you mentioning Max Roach because the Northampton Jazz Festival is celebrating Max Roach's centennial, uh, a, a world-famous drummer, incredibly influential, um, a professor at UMass back in the day. And one of the things that he is famous for is just playing the cymbal. Mm. A few minutes on, a few seconds really on how... How do you get that amount of sound? And that was incredible. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Max Roach was a huge influence on me. Um, as far as drummers of that, of that era and of that level, um, sort of bebop through post-bop drumming, he always struck me as someone who he'd like show up wearing a suit or at least, you know, buttoning up his shirt. But he just he seemed like he was someone who always emanated discipline and practice and craft. And I think one of the things that, that he did, I mean, you could speak to someone like John Fisher, a drummer in the area who studied with him and others who studied when he was at UMass. But he, he was so technically proficient that he could just grab a hi-hat, come up to the front of the stage, and give you all the sounds that hi-hat could create. So it was... Which it was, you just did. Yeah, there was dil diligence and practice, but also I think he was, he was uh, all about minimalism and creativity and not overplaying. Yeah, yeah, and inventiveness, which is the word I like to use for you. Anyway, speaking yeah. of Richie Barche and all of the wonderful music that he makes on nothing but um, a symbol, you can hear Richie in a number of different locations coming up. Um, one of the things that we want to talk about that's going to happen right here um, in Northampton is that Richie is instrumental in starting um, with Chris over at the Parlor Room, uh, the School of Music. Now that the Parlor Room is a nonprofit, they've started a School of Music, and Richie is going to be leading a BYO rhythm class. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about that, Richie? Yeah, the next one is Monday, June 5th. Um, it's called BYO Hand Drum. Sorry. A rhythm I... class with me. 
uh, with Richie Barche. And it started out as just a merely a body percussion class. I love teaching people b basics of rhythm through tapping um, and body percussion. Uh, but we bring hand drums, we, we play a little bit, we learn some technique, we talk about the, the origins of all these different drums people bring in because they come from all over the world. Um, so yeah, that's a series of classes. The next one is Monday the 5th. Monday, Monday June 5th. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to learn more about uh, rhythm uh, with Richie Barche, who's an incredible percussionist here, go to the parlor room on June 5th. What else do you have coming up where we can sit and enjoy listening to you perform? Yeah, absolutely. Well, locally, um, so I'm all over uh, these days, but locally, I'm playing in Hartford. Uh, first time playing back in Hartford in quite a while, July 22nd at Bushnell Park. Um, it's the Salsa Meets Jazz series. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I'm excited to be back in Bushnell Park. Uh, first time I played there, I was... 12 or 13, playing the Jazz Fest and sat in with Danilo Perez. Of course he was 12 Remarkable. or 13. <laughs> Danilo Perez and John Patitucci uh, got to play with them. That was another life highlight. But yeah, I'll be at the Bushnell July 22nd with Albert. Um, also, I mean, things coming up real soon. I'm in Montreal on uh, this Saturday on the 20th of May. Um, the Klezmatics are playing a, a music world music festival up there, and that's another band that I play with and quite the a bit. Klezmatics also, you perform locally with them, don't you? Uh, somewhat. Somewhat, yeah. We're New York, Boston. We tour quite a bit uh, throughout North America and Europe, mm -hmm. mainly. We've been as far as... Uh, Beijing. No, sorry. We've been as far as uh, Shanghai. That's okay. Beijing, yeah. Shanghai. It's it's still pretty far away on the other side of the world. So yeah. what's cool about your your Bushnell Park performance of Salsa Meets Jazz is that you're going to be returning with your buds, the Curtis Brothers, who, as you were saying at the beginning of the segment, is it was they were incredible musical influences on you when you were a teen. So that's that's really exciting. Yeah, we're um, still together. It's been 26 years. That's remarkable. With the Curtis Brothers since '97. So, so Richie, are you still are you still um, are you living here permanently in Northampton or Florence now? And then you're but you're just traveling all over. Exactly. The yeah, place? I've been in Florence since December 2020. Uh, my wife and I now have a two year old, so that's Congratulations. been a nice place to do that. And uh, yeah, is he pots and pans yet? Uh, Leona is definitely playing djembe, pots and pans. Yeah, she's all over the place. <laughs> she loves it. That's that's wonderful. Um, so I I uh, I think that what we're going to do is we're going to go out with uh, a piece from Richie's uh, uh, more recent album, which is called Sanctuary, which was uh, recorded um, in a. Yeah, it was recorded in Brooklyn in 2014 in an old 100-year-old uh, synagogue uh, in Flatbush, Brooklyn. So the, the sound of the sanctuary is just part of the album. And the sound of, of sanctuary is also Chick Corea, who is fe featured on this album. Um, and we are going to hear some of that now. Thank you. Thank you. 